I always get a little bit nervous before recordings. We've met, but we don't know each other. It could be terrible. I think it's like one of those things where, you know, like if you're at a graduation or something, all you have to do is walk across a room, but you immediately forget how to walk without looking weird. It's a bit like that because all we have to do is have a conversation, but then it's going to be public. So it's suddenly difficult to speak without sounding weird. I sound weird anyway when I speak, so. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That sounds perfect. Hello, my name's Emily Anderson and this is Unfinishing, the podcast about things that are incomplete, abandoned or not public. My guest this week is Franco Cookson, who is a climber and the star of Fall Theory, which is a film by Alistair Lee that premiered in 2021 and which follows Franco completing the first ascent of an incredibly dangerous route called The Immortal in North Yorkshire. We started off by talking through my guesses about the things Franco may not have finished, only some of which turned out to be correct. And then we get on to quite a variety of different topics. So we talk about how having climbs unfinished is ultimately inevitable with the approach of older age, about how climbing routes take on personalities as more people complete them, and about the importance of thinking through what could go wrong as preparation for doing a climb. I happened to speak to Franco on what was his very first day as a fully professional climber, so we also speak about the socio-economic barriers to doing that and the possible effects of social media on the process. There's also a bit about how great the castles in Northumberland are, and if you make it right to the end, some stuff about a play Franco started to write when he was at university. A couple more things before we get to the interview. Number one, I do need to apologise for completely failing to explain the climbing terminology that comes up in our conversation, but I don't think there's loads of it, so I'm hoping that it's possible to let that wash over you and still enjoy the conversation. And number two, as ever, if you have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, you can contact me via email on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on my new Instagram account, which is at unfinishingpod, to get the latest episodes. Um, Right, good, yeah. Sorted. Cool, okay. So, I've been trying to do a little bit of research on things that you might not have finished. And when I say that, what I mean is I've asked a few people... So I have a list of a couple of things that you might not have finished, but we're not sure whether you have or not. (laughs) So I thought I'd just test them with you. So the first one is an extension to the Meltdown, which I'm told is a multi-pitch slab in North Wales. And that if you do an extension to it, it could make it even harder. Yeah, 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 that is correct. So working on that one. (laughs) Well, yeah, kind of. So so it's a multi-pitch, so... I've never actually done like a a new multi-pitch route mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird because I've done each of the individual pitches but then I think in most places that doesn't count as having done it unless you've done it in a in one go in a day yeah I, I still need to go back and do the whole thing but then I find that quite hard with motivation because you've kind of already done all the bits of climbing so it's kind of strange so you've done all the climbing but you've not done all the challenge really and what's the plan for that are you going back soon so I tried it quite a lot um, during the summer, which is like a really bad time of year to actually be trying it because it's because the holes are quite small. You um you need the rubber on your shoes to be really hard. 
obviously this summer especially it was like 40 degrees sure um, so it was really in ideal so it is definitely i mean actually for your podcast on unfinished things is probably <laughs> maybe i'm quite a good person to um, have on because i uh, most of the stuff i do is like unfinished uh, i constantly have like loads of things that i'm trying at the same time much to the frustration of people around me who kind of say like well, why don't you just do do one of them and then do the other but it's kind of mentally a lot more difficult if you just stick to one thing so i would like to go and do this route yeah um but it's kind of first of all not not top of my priority really mm. once i know i can obviously if you can do the individual pictures eventually you should be able to do the whole thing in a mm-hmm. day and that's the point you were saying about not having necessarily the motivation yeah exactly so I do I do have a motivation to do it but it's like I've just got the motivation to do so many things and it's like mm. unless it's at the top of the priority list it just doesn't get touched because I don't know there's so many things to go and do and what do you think that's about like so as you say people have said why don't you just stick to one thing why do you prefer to try lots of different things at once I mean it's more interesting I, I maybe have a bit of a reputation for being kind of very boring going to the same crag like day in day out but Mm. even I like grow tired of you know day 243 trying the same move (laughs) on the same crag so it is you know it's like a real when you've been to the same you know you might go to the same crag like the same route five days a week Mm. you know and then allowing yourself to go to like even a different part of the crag or a different part of the slate quarries in north wales or you know I went and tried something near gogarth with a friend like on Anglesey and it was just like totally different there's like the sea and it was like, like mm. and it was like a, a proper treat not to be like because <laughs> it ends up being like a job really going to like the same same yeah. place down. and this touches on something that I've heard you say when you've been interviewed before about one of your main motivations for what you choose to climb and where you choose to climb being to not be boring you talked about people going and doing the same routes over and over and you see the same people there doing the same climbing. Yeah. Would you say that's one of your main motivations then to do something different and more interesting? Well, yeah, but then I suppose the uh, <laughs> the irony is that I end up being super boring in a different way. <laughs> so you can either be like like conceptually creative but actually like have like the day-to-day drudgeries like no snow, limits of boringness or um, you can kind of go to the same old boring crags we'll be doing you know, different things and new things every time. So I suppose it's just what you perceive as boring. And maybe you can do different things on different days. And you mentioned there as well about having different priorities, maybe to doing the meltdown at the moment. What is higher up your priority list at the moment? So that's another really good question. So, I mean, the problem I've got at the moment, so I've been very focused on the northeast of England for like the last 10 years. Um, so I've always had two or three projects in the, in the northeast of England that are like, they're not necessarily always the hardest ones but they're like the best and they're, they're generally like quite hard for me. And I'll, I'll go and try like one in the North Wales, one in Northumberland, one in like the coast somewhere. And I'll like alternate between the three depending on conditions because each crag will be like a little bit better if the wind's coming from the west or if mm. it's like cold or if it's hot. You know what I mean? So you end up – so I've always kind of had a few little projects, but they've all been in the same area, which makes it kind of – and I've not had so many projects, whereas in – I've kind of I'm getting to the point where I kind of exhausted what I could do in the northeast of England, mm. and also fancied like repeating some other people's like harder routes. So I ended up going around the UK, but then I've just found I've just found like loads of really really high quality unclimbed routes. So like two or three in the southwest of England, 
if you're in Scotland, loads in North Wales, you know, and these would be like really, really, really good climbs, you know, so you kind of yeah. want to climb them all, but then you end up being like, well, I'm, I'm like pretty, I'm pretty like critical of lines. Like I'll quite often say like, oh, this is quite good, but not like amazing. But once you find something that is amazing, you just like really, really want to climb it. And then you'll have like, you know, there might be, it might be nine hours drive away from where you live. And then it obviously becomes a bit of a mission. And you might have like two projects there and then two projects somewhere else and like one on Aaron and, you know, the Isle of Aaron or like one on Harris. It ends up just being kind of all, well, more than all consuming, like more than sure. you can realistically do. Because, you, you know, like one of these routes could take like 10 years to do really, mm. like the, the really hard ones. You might have to train specifically for like years on end and I don't know, you might still never do it, which is the biggest mental challenge of things that are unfinished is yours have the element of doubt that you might never do them. If you were in a situation where you've been trying something for 10 years and then you still didn't do it, how do you imagine you'd feel about that? Would you be able to say, well, it was just valuable to do the training and to make the attempt? Or is it all important to you to actually always complete the route? Probably more the latter, but I mean, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the definition of life itself, isn't it? Of eventually eventually there is a failure even you know the best climbers that have ever been there's always been the project that they didn't do yeah um so it's, it's you call it uncertainty but it's almost like a, a guarantee that you will mm. have things that you don't climb so i suppose you have to like be content in yourself that you're going to well you need to be content that you failed you failed in one sense, but obviously try and get some kind of take some pleasure from what you've achieved. But um, mm. I think honestly, I'm probably not there. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I suppose you like I'm kind of mid mid career, if you want to call it a career, but in the middle of like my hardest climbing. So I suppose when you're in the middle of it, you're just focused on climbing as the best stuff and the hardest mm. stuff that you can. And then I suppose it's um, a bit like. Yeah, when you approach in death, a bit like that, maybe you'd be um, <laughs> low and you're old. Maybe then you yeah. would you come to terms with it somehow when you're on the slope down. But I also really enjoyed just like repeating really easy routes in like the Lake District, like really, really easy things. Like I think you just find something different to do when you, when you get older or something. Or, but it's definitely like a concern, I suppose. And it's interesting what you were saying there about wanting to repeat things because the second thing that you may not have finished that I wanted to ask you about was the dark side in Northumberland, oh, right. which yeah, yeah. I'm told you were doing as part of a quest of repeating routes. And I wanted to ask you A, about that route in particular, because I'm told you might not have finished it, and B, about why you were trying to go around and repeat routes. Yeah, it's not, I suppose it's not all that really high up my list. I was trying to do it like without top roping it, which probably certainly wasn't good enough to do maybe still i'm not good enough to do it's quite like bouldery i did i did go and i had a few sessions trying to do it but not it's not really like really high up the uh, agenda really i find like northumberland climbing now i love going to northumberland but i almost kind of prefer just going and like looking at castles or <laughs> <laughs> uh, walking around northumberland uh, they do have a lot of good castles up there yeah i have a i've like you had some good sessions bouldering. There's an amazing number of castles in Northumberland. It's like, um, I think it's like the most castled place, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, I, I think I've realised that like what I really get out of Northumberland is 
less the I think the trad climbing is quite quite difficult to mm. get your head around. It's quite sandy and a bit a bit difficult really. Again, like the mid grade routes are probably the best ones. I think the harder routes in Northumberland are a bit very, very fiddly, difficult to get the right conditions and stuff. And why were you having a bit of a project for repeating other people's routes? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of like the what most people do, isn't that's like normal climbing. So, uh, so it was my attempt at being a bit more normal. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, around, I, I repeated some other routes around the UK as well last or well, this year, uh, start mm-hmm. this year, and um, I, there was an element of like wanting to kind of just see how the new routes that I'd done in the northeast of England got compared to those. So repeating routes is always really good for like kind of benchmarking, testing yourself. And it's just a lot, it's a lot lower stress. Like you just, you rock up, you know pretty much how hard it is because it's already graded and there might already be a video or whatever of it. And then you join this like little club of people who've done it. So when you see the people who have climbed it or who did the first ascent, you're like, nice to have a bit of crack with them and stuff. So it's just a lot, it's just a lot more like low key and just easier really. And also it's a bit, it is better for like, People are kind of interested. I think you get more from a professional climber point of view. It's um, mm. people are more interested to see repeat routes. I think. I think it's quite difficult for people to comprehend what like a new E nine or whatever is in the north east of England. Whereas, like people have quite a clear idea of like what a Gritstone Classic is or what um, something in Scotland is or whatever. So, because that's the weird thing with new routes is they have you know, routes end up having this personality. And when you initially do a new, well, before you do the new route, it has like, particularly if no one's tried it, it has like no personality because you have this like, it's obviously like a physical body of rock. And then you're like giving it this name and like describing what it's like. Like I said, make, mm. making a video or picture or whatever, and then it suddenly takes on this personality. So if, if you're the only person who's climbed it, it has... It's almost like a bit of a sketch, like an outline of what it's like. But it's only when you get more and more people repeating it and talking and writing about it that then it like becomes mm. a an actual entity in people's minds. So it's quite a it is interesting, I think, the way that roots are roots are kind of born. Yeah. That's a really lovely way of looking at it, actually. I never thought about that before. I mean, I'm not much of a climber, I've only been doing it for a very brief time, but that makes a lot of sense to me because I I find it really fascinating how there is that whole history of different climbs like people will talk about particular climbs yeah. as though they are people <laughs> um, oh, yeah. so it's yeah. yeah the idea of them having a personality really resonates i think yeah oh no yeah definitely um, there's kind of this like telescopic telescopification of um climbing history as well you know like if you mm. if you come across a route that's climbing that was climbed in like the 1950s or climbing equipment that was used in the 1950s it's almost like prehistory, you know, or like mm. like hundred years ago was basically like the start of proper climbing, really, or like two hundred years ago. So it's really weird. Something in the sixties, it's like really, really old. So it's all it's all been kind of sped up, really. Like in our lifetimes, climbing will be kind of like difficult climbing. At least it'll be twice as old or three times as old as it is yeah. at the moment, which is quite quite interesting to see what what happens. And this touches on. The final and third uh, unfinished project that I think might be <laughs> might be unfinished for you, um, which is an article for UK Climbing on grading, which I'm told was talking about the history of how things have been graded and how 
the grade of a climb might be different today because climbing technology has moved on since it was first climbed. Is that is that something you were working on? Oh, right. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. What, is this something I wrote or what, something that I've not published? <laughs> yeah, so I have intelligence that you were starting to write this article and then you didn't finish it. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. What about what, sorry? About how? So about how grading has changed due to advances in climbing technology. So when something was maybe first uh, okay. climbed, it would have been riskier or less easy than it would be now because yeah. climbing technology has just moved on so much. Yeah, is this weird, there's this weird kind of paradox in climbing that as technology gets, well, climbing grades have basically got softer through the years. So people started, you know, people did the first extremes in the 50s um, and they basically had no gear. They had like a rock wedge in the crack and a bit of mm-hmm. hemp rope around it. And then now there's all this gear and then the, that same route has gone from like hard VS to uh, like E3 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas obviously the opposite should really happen. I think there's going to be, a, yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot of debates going to be going on about grades in the next few years. People love, in the climbing world, love talking about grades. <laughs> uh, I mean, they are quite interesting. I mean, what's great about grades is that they're, because um, climbing is obviously meant to be this like personal thing that you do on your own. And mm. the grades are there to categorise climbs so that you can so you have a bit of prior knowledge about them before you set out on them. But actually, what they become is like a proxy for competition <laughs> between people. Yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously people absolutely adore. <laughs> and then obviously because there's, particularly with harder routes when there's very few repeats, you can, mm. um, one repeat has, you have a lot of weight behind what you say. So you can, mm. people get very political about the words they use and reading endless amounts of information information into what people mean by certain, certain adjectives or whatever. So it's all, yeah, yeah it's all pretty ridiculous. <laughs> Um, but it ends, you know, like, especially as climbing is more and more commercial, it becomes like, it's like, I mean, people like to pretend that it has no effect on like sponsorship and stuff, but it obviously does. So there's, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the chance that it's going to be more and more, um, arguments about it, there's likely to be a lot more in the future, I think. <laughs> and that's interesting that you say that about the effect on sponsorship and so on, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that process of, getting sponsorship, of doing publicity, of professionalising yourself as a climate. Am I right in thinking that you used to teach? Yeah. 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 Do you still teach? It was my last day yesterday, actually. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's my first day as a professional climber. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect question then in that case. Yeah, Could you yeah. tell me about that process and what it involves and, and how you feel about it? Um, I mean, I think there's lots of different types of professional climber. So you can be like... I mean, I suppose an argument that someone who's like a climbing instructor or a guide or someone's a, a kind of professional climber or someone who root sets or what's, you know, he's a coach at climb or something. But I suppose most people's idea of a professional athlete is somebody who focuses pretty much solely on their own, like, um, mm-hmm. training in order to achieve what they want to achieve athletically. Or So there's obviously a bit of a debate as to whether climbing is even a sport. Certain types of climbing almost certainly are. For example, sport climbing. <laughs> But the actual number of people in the UK who just go out and do whatever they want climbing and get money for that is 
very, very few next to zero. Mm. In fact, there's probably there's not that many worldwide, really. So it's pretty. I suppose it's a pretty difficult scene, and it's pretty difficult to get money versus rather than just getting some free kit, I suppose. And realistically, I think one of the big unspoken things in professional climbing, probably the whole outdoor scene, is like how difficult it is if you're from like certain socioeconomic backgrounds. So mm. if you've not come from like a, a lower middle class family or above in like the countryside, the little small family seat or, uh, <laughs> you know, or like a nice big house where you can sit around and yeah. live most of the time and then just go away in your van. It's pretty difficult to do, I think. I suppose most of the money these days, I'm kind of guessing here, but I'd imagine it's probably from like the influencer point of view. You know, if you have whatever kind of the right aesthetic and you've got a lot of followers on Instagram or whatever, then that's probably the best way of becoming a professional climber. So in a way, it's quite like democratizing because it's less about grades, like we're talking about. Like it's less about just yeah. like um, than it maybe used to be. Because in the olden days, it was basically just like if you climb really hard, got a nice picture, put it in a magazine, that was you sorted for a month and then you could go and do whatever you wanted. So it's probably harder work, but I don't really know because I've not really done it. But I mean, most things are pretty hard work. But you're not you're not going to get rich being a sponsor climber, I don't think, unless you you know one of the few. You need to be doing the right kind of climbing and be one of the best in the world, or be um, very attractive <laughs> <laughs> in some way. Yeah. And how do you feel about doing the public facing publicity kind of stuff with people like me? saying can you come and be interviewed do you do you enjoy it is it annoying how do you find it no it's fine it's like I think if you um if you hate it like say you're just not you'd just be better off doing something else if you hate it I mean I I do actually think most most I mean like I said there are very very few actual like full-on professional climbers but most people who may who you know who climb a lot of the time and have kind of seven professional professional climbers that I know I mean, obviously, people aren't going to be like getting the violins out for for them when they're just <laughs> dusting about in the vans, going climbing all the yeah. time. But they do, you know, they a lot of the time they're not in like really great mental place. I don't think. I think they feel there's a lot of pressure, mm. um, particularly if you're not if you're like quite good but not amazing. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like a really stressful position to be in. Like if you're doing a competition and you're like always getting like a seventh rather than. Mm first or second or whatever then it's like i imagine that's pretty pretty difficult isn't it so but yeah if you're not enjoying it you shouldn't really do it should you and also i think if you enjoy it too much then if you enjoy the being doing all the the swanning around doing speaking too much and you just want to go and do loads you're probably not focused on the climbing enough so like for me it's like quite a it's quite a small pot of money that the very few pro climbers can actually withdraw from um so if you're like even just getting a few grand here and there from companies you probably owe it to you know the dozens of really keen 18 year olds who like really want to just go and climb like the hardest like badger stuff they can all the time to go and actually do that so if you're just swanning around like doing moderately difficult things and getting some nice pictures and enjoying wearing a big gucci coat (laughs) at kendall (laughs) film festival you're probably doing it wrong as well so But like, hopefully, I mean, the reason why I've decided to do that now is because I've got these projects in Wales um, that are going to just require like loads and loads of effort and time and, tra- and training that you just can't do if you work, you know, working full time as a teacher is like exhausting. 
even working yeah. part time as a teacher. Worked full time most of the time, but did a little bit part time. Even just doesn't really work if you're trying to operate at the highest level. I think. Did the kids you were teaching know about your climbing? No, no. So I taught for like nine years, and um, none of them ever found me. I didn't be telling <laughs> any of my colleagues, but then when I was leaving. One of the, my colleagues like, told them like, the last two weeks so that the kids found us and just thought it was hilarious. Right. It was just like loads of – because the job I was doing was like a behaviour job. So I was like one of the people in charge of like, behaviour for the school. And um, so obviously in this like position like, – I'm, I'm like really boring at school. Um, <laughs> so like, you're, one of the, you're like this like, boring maths teacher. And uh, suddenly you see all these videos of you like falling off crags or like <laughs> jumping out of windows or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, and you come out. Obviously, there's a lot of kids in the school, and every yeah. kid's asking you. So you're just walking around school, like, oh. <laughs> school celebrity, all of a sudden. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah it was pretty <laughs> funny. I wanted to ask you as well about Tom Pierce, who you mentor, which I don't know if connects to you teaching. Actually, I've just only just thought of that, but he features in the film that you made with Alice to Leave Fall Theory, and I was really struck by how generous you are in that film towards him and I wondered if you could describe that relationship and I was just really interested as well whether are you also competitive with each other no no I don't okay. well I never really thought about that I'm not I certainly don't feel competitive towards him I, I'd imagine I suppose maybe I would be competitive with him one day I don't know yeah he um I'd imagine he's going to get very strong because he's completely different body shape to me he's like Mm. much shorter and much kind of stronger build so I suppose when he's like going to be cranking out like one arm pull-ups I might have a bit of envy I'm not sure how much mentoring of him I do or have done I suppose it's like inevitable if you're like older and he's interested in doing a lot of the things that you've done there's a bit of mentoring but it was never really set out like that Um, I mostly just started climbing them because there was nobody else to climb with Um, (laughs) yeah I suppose I, I suppose I have I have taken a few younger climbers out, but I think you have to be a bit careful with with mentoring someone who, particularly if they're doing dangerous routes, like I would always see mm. my role is to kind of like encourage, well, same with whatever age someone is, encourage them not to do dangerous things, particularly if it's like an ill-thought-out dangerous thing. But, yeah, I think it was, he's, re- he's, he's, he's a really impressive climber and he's still really young, so he's only, he's 17, so he's only just passed his driving test. The world really is his oyster. Um, he's really motivated and he yeah, has an interesting character. So he's coming up. To, I'm about to go to Spain, packing for Spain today. I'm going to oh, go great. to Spain for um, just short of three months. So he's coming out for like a month. So I think that, that'll be kind of like, well, maybe not the making of him, but a really good experience for him because I think he could do with just pushing himself in like a safe setting and seeing how good he mm. gets. But it's, I, I just think it's really cool when... I'm quite passionate about people coming out of areas of the UK where they're not like particularly known for climbing. So like the North York Moors is like really strange how it's produced up like loads and loads of climbers. The people who climbed in like our generation, Tom's I suppose a generation younger. There's a few climbers mm. of that that age. But then the, you know, like generation before, generation before that, loads and loads of climbers like John Reddard and Nick Dixon, Steve McClure, people who've come from the North York Moors. So I think that's that's really cool because then they can like offer British climbing something a little bit different as well. And you mentioned there when you were climbing with Tom and with others about assessing risk and advising on an approach to risk. And 
one of the things that I did want to ask you about was your approach to that, because I read a little bit of your blog about the mental process that you went through when you were climbing the Immortal, which is the route in North Yorkshire that's in fall theory. And you said that you spent time thinking about falling off and that how you, you thought about the possibility that there was a probability somewhere of you, and I'm going to quote you, <laughs> lying in a mangled tangle on the ground. <laughs> could, you, could you talk me through why it was important to you to spend the time thinking about that possibility as part of your preparation? So if you commit to like the cook's move, say, and then you get into there, and then suddenly you start thinking about that. So suddenly at the point of like commitment, you start thinking, oh no, what if I fall off? If at that moment you haven't, you haven't gone through like the, the thought process of like, if this happens, what, what then happens? I just, I would like, when I'm doing like a project, I just like to think of everything to the, like the nth degree. So I just think like, right, if this happened, like a kind of probability, this happens, then that happens. If this happens, then that happens and you just follow. So you've got kind of an answer for everything. So that yeah. I just find that as a way of like not like catastrophizing in the moment because you already have when this event occurs, this is the solution or, mm. you know, and, you, and I mean, I suppose like sports science, I think I'm no expert, but they're always visualizing success. I think that's what you're meant to do. You know, if you're going to try and win the hundred meters at the Olympics, <laughs> you visualize like going over the line and, and winning. Whereas, and, and this is why I don't really think it's, it's got elements of sport in it but i don't think it's just a sport like bold trad climbing because it has that if if you just do that that's what like so i had a really bad fall when i was 19 and i fell like 20 meters and hit the floor right um and that's what that was where you just like you were only focused on and i suppose that's what i'd kind of persuade tom out of thinking i don't know whether he thinks like that or not but like i think there's a tendency when you're younger to just kind of be like I'm going to do this. It'll be fine. All right, there's a risk, yeah. but it always turns out all right. And eventually it doesn't turn out all right. Yeah. And the times when I've been in that moment where like, you realize you're about to fall off and you haven't even thought about like, well, what like what's going to be the outcome if I fall off? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. so when I fell off, I fell off at Tint Whistle now trying this new route. And I was just in a, in a so I'd thought about things like subconsciously or kind of, flippantly or quickly just kind of thinking like all right well that's like the no fall zone you can't fall in that area Mm. so then what do you do when you're in the no in what you think is a no fall zone and you have messed up and you haven't thought about like what you do if you mess up so you just like Mm. take a hold a bit wrong or actually that holds a bit wetter than i thought there's a bit of water dripping on it which is stupid to try that day but anyway (laughs) so you put your foot on hold and then you shoot you know your rubber on your shoe is wet and you're like what do i do now and if you haven't thought about that, that's just, I mean, that's just moronic, isn't it? So like that's, so I, I think, so my solution after a couple of things like that, which is fortunate, I mean, this is why if you survive these things, they actually end up being incredibly, like incredible learning experiences, so long as you actually think yeah. about what went wrong, which I hope Tom does if things go wrong for him, because you don't get many opportunities like that. So my solution in the future was just to think about, every single possibility and try mm. and like break everything down for a lot of routes i'll try and like do it see if i can do the cook backwards so that gives you a, a huge sense of like confidence that you could down climb but then you also need to know like you can't be thinking as 
you know, if I'm going through, let's say, on the immortal, that was like really hard bold problem for me. Like it was about as hard as I could yeah. boulder. So as I went th- into that, you also, do- <laughs> so, I mean, this is the level of thought you have to put into it. You, you have to be like, well, when I go into that, am I thinking, am I going to touch that hole and see how it feels? And then if it feels not that great, try and down climb. Well, no, I'm probably not going to do that because if I if I if I get that hold and even think like that, the chances of me then committing to the next move are not going to happen. So it's almost like acting. So when you practice it on in safety on a top rope beforehand, you like mm. you're acting like. So you have to convince yourself. This is where it helps being a bit maybe a little bit crazy because you're like God delusion or something because <laughs> you can actually like properly trick yourself when you go into that crux of being like this is the lead go. And then if you mess up, obviously you are safe. safe. I mean, you're really scared. <laughs> Sometimes with top rope girls, I'd be like terrified because yeah. I'd like properly forget I wasn't leading and then I'd fall off and be like, ah, and I'd feel like I'd fall <laughs> off. But then, I hadn't, but then that allows you to then be calmer on the actual lead because yeah. you've already gone through all that stuff. But it's obviously not a perfect thing. So there'll always be, or sometimes be something that you've forgotten to check out or something, which is why bigger routes are harder as well. So these routes in Wales, they're harder, more sustained, longer, more physical, can can be kind of more dangerous, the bigger. So they're just like, mm-hmm. you know, rather than having a thousand decisions and things to prepare for, you might have 50,000 or something. Or rather than 100, you might have 4,000 or something. So that's why it takes a long time prepare because i think people are just like what what are you doing for five years to prepare for a route <laughs> but um, yeah and i just want to turn really briefly back to the idea of not finishing things and success you mentioned when we started talking that if you haven't finished something that in a way you failed and one of the things that i really liked when i was researching you and i was looking at your ukc profile and you have a list of highlights most of which are about climbs that you've achieved as in finished. But one of them was about tucking into dinner with a sunset view with a friend. And I really admired that you'd included an experience that wasn't about completing a really hard route or completing any route, really. And I wanted to ask you, how important to you are those other bits of climbing that aren't about reaching the top of a route? Yeah, I mean, yeah, in one way, like they're not important at all. And then in another way, they're even the kind of quite um, black and white objectives mm. that you have to do with difficulty or whatever on new routes they're all kind of built on the just the emotional the, well, the, the emotion you're chasing really so mm. you know so the routes in the north northeast of england each one of those was like a little a little almost like athletic endeavor and a really black and white objective but actually the whole thing was like based on a on a, like emotional response to climbing the northeast of England, mm. so like you know, being with being with your friends or not being with your friends, being on your own, being in a place where you grew up, nostalgia, which I think is probably like the most powerful human <laughs> emotion. So, yeah, I think it's ultimately it all comes back to that, doesn't it? And it, you know, like I said at the beginning, like eventually, when you can't be, when you eventually not going to be climbing harder and harder and harder, you can end mm. up been older and not been able to climb as hard it's all going to come up to that isn't it but but that doesn't mean you shouldn't you shouldn't try hard mm. athletically or mentally because sometimes the athletics of these things aren't actually that hard it's mostly the mental but um i think you do have to try and keep those things in balance i suppose keep them checked like i say all these things i don't like have all the answers like 
thinking like you know thinking about it is that's part of the part of the point i think of being human there is a point isn't it to, to actually <laughs> ask yourself those questions yeah and you've mentioned the north york moors a couple of times and you wrote a guidebook for that i know and this is a slightly left field question but reading the stuff that you've got on your blog and elsewhere i wondered if you thought about doing any other kind of writing or, or any new books in the future because i think you're a really amazing writer all right thanks yeah yeah i suppose it would do yeah you need something good to write about, don't you? I mean, <laughs> you'd have to be a pretty good writer just to write about, like, going to top open a route over and over again. <laughs> and it to be interesting. That's the kind of thing you can do when you're older, isn't it? Like, when you mm. can go and do something in the big mountains. I do really like big mountains, you know, like, even if it's just to look at. And they're obviously a lot easier to write about, I think. I think you have to be pretty interested in how I've tried to read a uh, Bridget Jones diary to uh, <laughs> trying the same project for 10 years maybe that's your idea right there I'd read that <laughs> yeah. I just I quite often just write stuff for myself now and just so I still write loads of blog posts just keep more private um, that's interesting I like I think writing's nice isn't it and I think you write different if you write in with the idea of like showing people that you write differently yet you have to write more comprehensively I think as well so is that almost like a diary that you're keeping for yourself? Yeah. Well, I do actually. I've got a journal, actually. Oh, right. But that's, that's quite a matter of fact. But he's just like writing like stupid, like flowery language mm-hmm. stuff. Because I did German at university, so trying to like, like emulate German word order and things in. Mm. So it was like impossible to follow <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> I wrote a play once. That was, that was funny. No way, yeah. what was the play about? Well, only like five five scenes of it. It was just it was when I was at university and I was so I went to university in Manchester and I just like hated the city. Mm. So um, right. it was all about this um person who well, I don't know, I suppose was having kind of a, a mental breakdown and <laughs> had, to, right. had to leave the city and then went to the countryside and it was all great. But I stopped <laughs> writing it because they got to the countryside and it was fine. Uh, but it was all in like ludicrous Shakespearean language. <laughs> Do you still have it? Well, no, like so. Well, I don't think so. it might be somewhere. I kind of remembered it. I think well, most of it. But don't ask us. To, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not asking you to uh, get it out. It'll be one of those things that, speaking of death again, like after you die, someone will dig it out of an archive and <laughs> and, yeah. and find this un- unfinished, unpublished play. <laughs> yeah, maybe I've forgotten it actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it'd be good to have a climbing play. That'd be good, wouldn't it? About that would be good. I can imagine some fantastic staging involving climbing walls in the theatre. Yeah, 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 that would be cool, wouldn't it? There you go. There's your next project. That's an idea. Well, there you go. That was my interview with Franco Cookson. I think it went quite well. I don't think anyone did any metaphorical falling over at graduation. I was struck by the fact that Franco was quite philosophical and quite reflective. So if you've seen Fall Theory, or in fact stuff on Franco's uh, YouTube or Instagram, he mentioned something about falling out of a window, jumping out of a window, sorry. 
you'll know that he's quite good fun. <laughs> and I would very much recommend watching Fall Theory. It is excellent. But yeah, I was struck by how philosophical he was. And I thought it was fascinating in particular what he was saying about how at some point in climbing and also in life, a failure is guaranteed. I also thought it was really interesting what he was saying about having kept his climbing life separate from his teaching life. And I actually wish on reflection that I'd asked him more about that. As you will have been able to tell, I didn't warn Franco in advance that I'd done some digging and tried to find out about projects that he might not have finished. And I thought his reaction to me springing those on him was very generous. He was obviously also really patient in talking to someone like me who doesn't know a huge amount about climbing. And I should mention as well that he was really patient in advance of our call when we faced some technical problems and I just couldn't get the recording to work for quite a long time. So thank you to Franco for all of that. I also wanted to say thank you to my friend Josh Rawson who helped me out with giving me his insights into Franco's climbing and into Franco's projects. And thank you too to another friend, Vicky Hunt, who put me in touch with Franco in the first place. Last, but definitely not least, thank you for listening. Do please go and have a look at previous episodes if you liked this one. There are some more climbers on there, but also lots of other people with unfinished projects as well, including writers, artists, musicians, and even gardeners. So you can very much pick what you're already into, or in fact, learn about an area that's new to you.